Thank you for listening to the Radiant Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at weareradiant.com. So I want to look online, thank those who are watching online in St. Pete and uh, South Tampa, looking good. Okay. I was thinking about it. Some of you are like, oh, where's Pastor Aaron? And I was thinking about it. Okay. Pastor Aaron is like ice cream and I'm like broccoli. Okay. <laughs> we all want the ice cream, but once in a while you got to eat the broccoli. Okay. So I'm here and, and, and I'm super excited because uh, he didn't tell the other part of that of Paul and I, my beautiful wife is over there, but you know, we dated as 15-year-old pagans. We were lost in our sins, and we were messed up. We were messed up. That's what I like to say. We were all, and yet, you know, married at 19, uh, radically saved at 17, both of us married at 19, and nobody thought we were going to make it. And here, Lord willing, this year, 40 years, 40... <laughs> part of that's just staying alive, so that's what you're thought. And watching the blessing of our four kids and their marriages now, and now, Lord willing, 19 grandchildren this year. So um, yeah, yeah, we, we believe literally in the Bible, be fruitful and multiply in our family. So I'm trying to tell them to slow down. So speaking of sex, but anyways, anybody at the XO conference? Yeah, okay. You're going to find out, yeah, you found out there, I have a very thin filter. And uh, I like to talk about sex. And everybody, I think, who was at that expecting me to talk about that today. Well, I hate to disappoint you, but, and Pastor Aaron's very nervous because he's wondering what I'm going to talk about, but we're not going to talk about that. But my wife and I have a podcast, The Radical Christian Life with Doug and Paula. And tonight at midnight, we're dropping a new podcast on Let's Talk About, <laughs> you guessed it, sex. So that's uh, uh, just a shameless plug, but uh, it, we should talk about it in the church. Why do we listen to the world? Why don't we discuss it? But you might not want to have your kids in the car while you're listening to it, um, unless you're ready to have that talk with them. So anyways, but it's good. And we also have a podcast on the secrets of marriage. And, and there we talk about some of the practical things you can do in marriage, what we did, like kind of what you heard at the XO conference. And, and I can't really improve on what we heard from Pastor Aaron two weeks ago, the number one killer of relationships. If you haven't listened to that, go back and watch it on the YouTube channel he talked about. And then last week, Pastor Aaron and Katie did a killer job, especially if you're single or dating and then married. So yeah, so it was so good. But, but today I'm going a little bit different. And any foundation people in here? For you new or new, that's our place to go a little bit deeper and study. And you know if I have my clicker in my hand, we're going into teacher's mode, okay? So we're going a little deeper and this is the broccoli part, okay? Uh, I'm gonna, I went and told jokes to myself in between services because the first service, their eyes were that big. And they're like, and I'm thinking, I cut out the Frederick Nietzsche quote. I thought I was lighting it up. But anyway, so, uh, but, but why? So Paul and I, a couple weeks ago, we were at Staff Chapel. And Pastor Aaron had Paul and I talking about marriage. And uh, he asked this question. He started off by saying, lots of marriages are collapsing during this season. What do you think the common issue is? I didn't hesitate. I said, I know. Alexander Schultz at Neetzen. Yeah, their reaction was the same as yours, okay? It's not what you expect in a marriage talk. But if you know who he was, he was uh, put into the Russian Soviet gulags in the Soviet Union back in the 60s and 70s. And he wrote a famous book, The Gulag Archipelago, which literally helped bring down the collapse of communism because he exposed the evils of communism and, and it got out into the West. And he actually won a Nobel Prize in literature for it. And but what people don't know is one of his famous essays. See, the Soviet Union got so upset with the problems he was causing with the people when they realized they were being lied to that 
Uh, they exiled him. They kicked him out to the West. And before he left, he penned a, an article, a letter to the people under Soviet communism, and he titled it, Live Not By Lies. And I say that is the number one reason marriages are collapsing, because we're listening to the lies and the narratives that the world is saying to us. And so this morning, the first half is going to be a little heavy, okay? This is the deer in the headline. Like, I mean, I already brought, like, we're talking about the Gulag Archipelago. I mean, like, yeah, you probably haven't read it, but it, and you won't because it's two volumes. And I, yeah, so watch the YouTube version. Of, well, no, anyway. <laughs> but we're going to go a little into to why, why marriages are falling apart at such, such a rapid rate, even in the church. See, I travel the world. I, I, I help out at Serving Bound Borders, but it's not my daytime job. I literally run a nonprofit, Serving Bound Borders, where I travel around the world. I'll be on a plane this week going overseas. And, and it's so interesting. When I come back to the West, it's so different, and families are so different, and we're seeing the collapse of the family and marriages so much in the West, so much at a rapid pace than we do around the world, unless it's an animistic culture. But when I go to the Muslim and the Buddhist and the Hindu cultures and Shinto and that, I don't see the collapse like I do in the West. And it really got me thinking. I've been doing research and studying. And, and so I want to help you understand two lies that are undermining biblical marriage. There are more than this, but I think these are the two lies that are really undermining biblical marriage. Because what's happening is we'll go to an EXO conference. So you'll come and you'll hear me and give you some pointers, you know, like have date night and do these kind of things. But, but if we don't understand the lies that are creeping into our thinking, our marriages will potentially fail. I love living in Florida. I mean, I was calling my mom, and she can't go out because it just got hit with a big snowstorm up in the Midwest. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go take a walk with Paul, and it's 80 degrees. You know, <laughs> don't you love living here? But it's funny. When you talk to somebody from the Midwest or from the West, they're like, you live in Florida? Aren't you scared of sinkholes? You know, they read an article about a house collapsing in a sinkhole 20 years ago, and they think we drive to work dodging them, you know? And, uh, <laughs> but sinkholes are real, and, and what is it about sinkholes? Well, you have the house or the building, and everything looks fine, but underneath... And it doesn't happen, it happens gradually that the water, whatever's under, is just eroding the foundation. It's eroding it, and then one day it collapses. And that's the same thing with marriage. If you don't realize the subtle lies of this, this world that's creeping into your marriage, then you have a fight or there's a problem, and the foundation, I mean, everything collapses because it's been eroded away. So that's why I'm going into this, okay? So just, would you just bear with me a minute? I'll try and light. No, I can't lighten up. That's not me. But so let's just get right into the number one lie that I believe that is undermining marriages, and it's humanism. We have bought into this, this idea called humanism, and it's sunk into the Western society. When I say Western, I'm talking Northern Europe, Northern Europe and North America. Humanism is simply the system of thought that attaches prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural forces. A book that I read and I recommend to people is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. It's a big scholarly tome. He's coming out with a new version, a condensed down. Paul says, I'll wait for the condensed version on March 22nd. But Carl Truman, and he talks there, he talks what he calls mimesis and poesis. And I just threw that out there so you could go to Starbucks and sound smart. You know, I was studying on poesis this week and uh, yeah. <laughs> But what his mimesis is, is there's this idea that there's something greater than us out there. There's something beyond us. Poesis is this idea that, no, it's just this brute world that we live in, that, and there's nothing greater. The, the narrative is here and now, and that's where truth is, and that's how we define things. And if you don't understand that, you'll start believing that and that there's maybe something greater out there. Because we're in church, right? We're going to say there's a God, but we don't live like there's a God. And we live like the world who doesn't believe that there's something out there greater than us. 
And if you want just an illustration of this, let me just bring up this idea, creation versus evolution. Try to get tenure in a university, a secular university, teaching creationism. There's no way. Look in our political realm. If you want a fun experiment to see what I'm saying and the validation of it, just type in Mike Pence, you know, the former vice president who's a born-again Christian and believes the Bible, and type in his name and creation or evolution. Article after article, how could we have a pre vice president who believed in such Neanderthal thinking that there was some creator God and, and we deny evolution? Now, I don't want to get into that. Can you, there be a God who worked through evolution? That, that's another discussion. But that's not what's being taught. It's more atheistic evolution, that, that we were just primordial things in some soup and that we crawled up out of it and somehow some inanimate objects got souls. That's an interesting idea. And then somewhere along the line, because of the attacks on us, we decided that we need to find somebody to produce babies so these babies could grow up and help protect us, and we could start forming tribes to protect us from the forces attacking us, and that's why marriage came about. See, if you believe in humanism, you believe marriage is a social construct. It's a human institution. And if you believe that, then you can just simply take the next step, and we can define it the way we want. We can make marriage what we want. We can take it or leave it what we want because it's something we made up. So if we make it up, we can break it apart. And that creeps into our thinking. And when you don't think that way, if you don't rec recognize how that's crept into our thinking, you have potential that when the next fight comes or the next problem comes in your marriage, the sinkhole is going to be exposed and your marriage is going to collapse. Because yeah. it's not our call. It's not a social construct made by humans. There's something greater than us out there. But if you don't believe that, which the world does believe, the Western world does believe that. And again, go out and just start talking about marriage and listen to what they say about it. That's why I even get married. Just live together. I mean, we have people in our church literally who have said to me before, well, what do you, you know, this thinking that I can't, have sex before marriage. I mean, I got to try it out first, don't I? I'm like, what? <laughs> For 2,000 years, they didn't try it out, and they did okay. <laughs> but see, that's just an expression of what's crept in. Yeah. And if you believe in humanism, then you're going to naturally go to the second thing. The second lie that that's, we bought into is called expressive individualism. This word, this idea, this views a lot now in philosophy and theology and that is, comes from Robert Bella and his favorite bu famous book in the late 90s, early 2000s, Habits of the Heart. But it was really Charles Taylor in his book, The Secular Age, I think around 2005, 6. And if you read that and they talk about expressive individualism, and it's defined like this, human beings are defined by their individual psychological core. See, if there's nothing out there then where's truth and ultimate reality going to be found? It must be found here. It must be found within me. And we can sing songs in church like, I am who you say I am, and God defines me, but then as soon as we walk out of church, the world's bombarding us. We're like, no, it's about you. It's about you define reality. You define what truth is. And you see this all the time. I, I give this example to a lot of young guys, because a, a lot of young guys like to watch YouTube, if you know that, and they love to watch them. Ben Shapiro is a famous YouTuber and social influencer, head of the Daily Wire. And uh, usually when I say, I'm like, nah, I see the head, yeah, a lot of the young guys like, yeah, I watch them, and I watch them. And, and he made his 
fame by going on to college campuses and debating. Now, whether you agree with his politics or not, it's not the issue. But he has a famous saying when he's debating, feelings aren't facts. Feelings aren't facts. And, and, and I'll listen to him, and even if I don't agree politically or something, but I'll say, yeah, he's making the logical argument, and the other person's not. But I say, Ben, you're winning the battle, but you're not winning the war. Because of this expressive individualism, the person sitting there saying, wait a minute, you're right, feelings aren't facts. They're greater than that. They're my identity. They're who I am. So you're now attacking me personally. So I'm rejecting what you're saying because you're hurting me, and I'm the ultimate reality. And you want to see how this is a marriage? Just listen to how people talk about marriage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're having problems. You do you. You do you. Yeah. What? No Christian should ever say it. Pastor Aaron talked about that a couple weeks ago. No, you do God. Right. You do his word. Amen. You know, but no, that's not what the world's going to tell you. Know, you do you. No, you got to be true to yourself. You know, why don't you be true to God? Amen. Why don't you be true to God? No, no, no. It's about, you know, you got to put yourself first. You know, your spouse isn't treating you the right way. You got to put yourself first. Can there really be anything more antithetical to what Jesus said? Who said, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him? Yeah. But if we believe there's nothing greater out there, if we believe marriage is just a social construct, if we believe in expressive individualism, then it's about my happiness. It's about my feelings. So if marriage isn't meeting, and this is the big one, it's not meeting my needs. I can walk away from it. Is there any wonder it's collapsing so much in the West? Is there so much, you know, you young, younger people, I get it. We gave you a bad hand. I come from that generation a little bit before me, the whole 60s and the sex revolution. If you want to get into philosophy, study how the Enlightenment passed on to the Romantics, came out with, uh, here's my little nerdiness, Nietzsche with philosophy and Darwin with science and Karl Marx in the political realm coming together in, the, in Freud with his psychology, coming in psychoanalysis, coming into the Frankfurt School of the 40s and 50s, resulting in the sexual revolution of the 60s. And what did we give you? A horrible picture of marriage. So why would I get married? I'm just going to live together. And that's why. And so you older people, I can't believe my kid's going to live together. What narrative have we given them? We've given them humanism and expressive individualism. And why would they want to get married? There's nothing greater than their personal happiness. And that's the lies that's eroded in biblical marriage. So I express it like this. Listen to this statement. If you hold to the lies that there is no ultimate reality outside of this world, and if it is I who defines who I am, and if society tells me that marriage is a social construct, then biblical marriage is not only nonsensical, it is dangerous. See, because ultimately... You're oppressing me because you're oppressing my feelings. You're oppressing my happiness. My spouse isn't meeting my needs, and you're telling me not to leave them. You're, you know, my spouse isn't helping me fulfill and find my purpose and destiny. I can do what I want. And so you, you know, you, wow, are you holding a biblical marriage? Well, I love what my wife says. I, you, you, want, you women, if you can get together with my wife, now she's going to get a thousand emails. She's going to be mad at me. But, I mean, she's the real deal, right? Amen. Not because of me, because of Jesus Christ, okay? Right. And so she loves to say this. Marriage will never bring fulfillment to an unfulfilled life. Wow. That's it. But we're trying to get married to find fulfillment. And there's something greater than that. There's something greater than marriage. I like being married. I like the benefits of marriage, okay? That's why we have lots of kids and grandkids in my family, right? But that's not the ultimate fulfillment. 
So why? Why does Radiant hold to biblical marriage when this whole narrative out there is telling us it's a human construct? Well, okay, now comes the fun part. We hold to biblical marriage simply because Jesus says so. Not because the Bible says so, because Jesus says so. And this is so important. See, people, I just want to remind us, we are a church, right? And the church is made up of who? Christians. Wow, you didn't get that answer. I'm a little nervous now. Okay. <laughs> church is made up of Christians. Christians is the word for Christ followers. We follow Christ. So we should do what Christ does. We, that's why we turn the other cheek. That's why we give our money to the poor and help the oppressed. That's why we love our enemies and pray for them. Because it's natural? No, but because Jesus did it. And if I'm going to give to the, you know, what, what do we love to say, Radiant? Anybody who predicted and pulled off his own death and resurrection, that's somebody you should listen to. You know? And he changes lives. He changed our lives. And that's why we come together as a church. Amen? So we should do what Jesus did, and we should believe what he taught. It just doesn't make sense. That's why I have no patience with progressive Christians who are redefining marriage in their church and making it what they want, and yet they say they're followers of Jesus. That's an oxymoron. Yeah. Go follow another religion. I tell them, don't, it's great. Do what you want. Just don't call yourself a Christian because that means you follow Christ. And it's confusing people. You follow Christ, but yet you're going to say what marriage is, not what Jesus said. And again, so what I, notice how I worded, I put it, not because the Bible says so, because that's what we do too often. We push that on our kids. Well, the Bible says it, so you should do it. The Bible says you should do it. I believe in the Bible, okay? I'm the guy who teaches inerrancy at Radiant, okay? <laughs> so, I mean, I believe it, but, but it's greater than that. See, I don't believe in Jesus because I believe the Bible. I believe in the Bible because I believe in Jesus, because Jesus taught the Bible. And if he died and rose again, I mean, I don't know anyone else who's died and rose from the dead. Do you? It was him, so I'm going to listen to what he said, and he affirmed the Bible. That's why I believe in the Bible. And you know what I notice in the secular world? You go out there, the people who follow the social constructs of marriage and stuff, they love to argue with your view of marriage. They love to argue with politics and the Bible. They'll argue about the Bible, that old book that, you know, you believe in that. But they really get nervous when you bring up Jesus. And you say, well, hey, hey, I don't know, but... I I believe in Jesus, and this is what he said. And you show them what he said. Now they've got to wrestle with Jesus. And trust me, it's better to let them wrestle with Jesus than with you. Because you may lose. He never loses. Okay? Yeah, I should just quit right there. I finally got a Twitter moment. So, But I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Okay? So let's look at Matthew 19, 3 through 6. Here's the definitive passage of what Jesus taught about marriage. Okay, in Matthew 19, verse uh, 3, it says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, let me just stop there. First, if you see capital letters in, in most of your study Bibles, it means he's quoting from the Old Testament. So here Jesus is quoting from Genesis 1. And just think about this. So here's Jesus, the one who died for your sins and rose from the dead, called himself the Messiah, the son of the living God, saying that from the beginning, so he's saying Genesis is the beginning. He's saying he created them so that people aren't just some social contracts who came out of primordial soup, but they're people created in the image of God. Because he's quoting Genesis 1.27 where it says God made them in his image. Okay? So, so we can't make up. Social constructs on gender, he gave it to us. That's, I know, that's, man, just right now, if you're pushing back, like, ooh, that's, that's kind of dangerous to say, Doug. That's because we're listening to the social construct out there versus what the word of God says in here. I'm not trying to blast the world, but I'm saying, church, let's just be the church. 
And that's why we find fulfillment and happiness. That's why I hope you have a marriage like Pastor Aaron and Katie, because they get it, like Paul and I, and people who follow the Bible. (laughs) But I'll get to why it's even better than that. But he goes on, he says, And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God, what God, what not humanism, but something greater than humanism, God has joined together, no person is to separate. That's what Jesus said. Like, you can get mad at me. Doug, he's boring, he's not funny, he tells those stupid jokes. You can go, but you're going to wrestle with what Jesus says here. He quotes from Genesis 2, 24, saying, this is marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He said it. So we don't believe in biblical marriage at Radiant because the Bible says so. It's better than that because Jesus says so. So put up the next slide because if you have teenage kids or kids in college, I would literally take a picture of that screenshot and and talk about it at your dinner table because your kids are going to face it man i i love talking with pastor john and pastor sarah and talking about the youth and man what the youth are going through why are suicides rising so high amongst high school and college kids why is depression and you know counseling rising so high amongst this generation because they're being bombarded more than you are with the lies of the social narrative out there and they're trying to find meaning and purpose in themselves and their feelings and they're taught to experiment and see and it's just leading them to despair. And you never de- just teach them. They don't have to go out to college and high school and defend why we believe in purity, why we believe in holiness, because it's better for them. No, it's simply because we believe Jesus died for our sins. Yeah. And, and he called himself the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and, and he's alive. And because of him, that's why we do it. And again, teach your children, it's about Jesus. It's not about the church. It's not about us. It's not about our family because that's going to fight against the social narrative they're hearing. But it's about Jesus who's greater than us. And have this discussion. That's why this is my number one thing in apologetics. Don't defend the Bible. Don't defend the church. There's all sorts. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, the church has problems. Come in and join it. They'll have more problems, you know. Yeah, but there's something greater than the church. It's the one who founded the church. It's Jesus, you know. Yeah, marriages, marriages are messed up. I see it. I mean, yeah, believe me, we've had our fights, you know, and sometimes I actually win. But, you know, we have our fights and stuff like that. But there's something greater than marriage. It's Jesus. Okay, you holding on with me? Okay, now it gets fun. Now I'm going into my foundation mode. I'm going, if you saw, ever heard me do this story of the Bible, See, the other thing why we believe in marriages is that marriages are a metaphor for the grand narrative of divine marriage. Oh, there, there. Wow, that's right. Our marriages are a metaphor for the grand narrative of divine marriage. See, we want to make marriage about us. We want to make marriage about our personal fulfillment and our personal happiness, and that's buying into that expressive individualism. It's much better than that. It's much better than that. So let's just walk through the Bible for a second. Have you ever thought about Genesis 1 and 2? Here, God creates everything. Genesis 1 is the overall picture of creation, and he creates, does creation in six days and rests on the seventh day. So he creates everything, but then what does he finally create at the end? What is the culmination of creation in day six? Genesis 1.27, we saw it from Jesus. Adam and Eve, his image bearers, 
People made in his image, separate from everything else on this world, only we bear his image, and we are called to rule over the earth, to have dominion, the Bible says. This is why we believe in biblical environmentalism. We're to make the world better, not pollute it and tear it down. So, so that's what we were called to do, and do it as male and female as his image bears. But then Genesis 2 is an expansion on that creation of male and female. And there's where we learned that he created Adam first. And so when we get this guy, idea, you know, this old-fashioned thinking that man is the head of the, you know, woman and the head of marriage, all like, oh, that's so oppressive. That, well, I don't know. I didn't write Genesis 2. God did. And God put, well, God through Moses, right, an inspiration of the Bible. Let's not get our theology messed up, right? <laughs> And God created Adam, and then he brought this helpmeet along, this helpmeet called Eve, to come together, to work together, to subdue the earth, to have dominion over the earth, to work together as image bearers in partnership. So when you think of headship and helpmeet, it's not oppression like the world's going to say. It's not doormat like the world say. It's not about abuse like the world says. It's about coming together as co-equals and co-heirs to work together to make the family a better place, to make the world a better place. So that's the culmination. So think about it. The culmination of the first creation is what? But it's marriage. See, marriage is right there from the beginning, and it's the fulfillment of creation. But don't stop there. It gets better than that. Because now you go to the Old Testament, and you're following the story. And in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Hosea is the culmination, that God is a husband married to the people of God, Israel. The blessing of God was given to Abraham and then Abraham's son Isaac and then Isaac's son Jacob and then Jacob's 12 sons, which are the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God. And it says that it's a marriage. And God, if you ever read the prophets, I mean, the prophets are a little disturbing, right? Like, dudes, lighten up, okay? You sound like Dr. Doug. You're like an angry guy, you know? Be a little more Pastor Aaron, right? Yeah. But, but no, God is angry with the prophets. Why? Well, I hate to say it, but have you ever had a front row seat to adultery? See, I watched my dad have adul commit affairs on my affairs, commit adultery on my mother. And my mother took the high road. She was actually even willing to have him back, and he came back for a period of time, and finally he had enough, and he just abandoned the family and ran off. And I watched the anguish and the pain of my, my mom went through. Proverbs 27.4, wrath is fierce and anger is a flood, but who can stand before jealousy? And that's the picture of God. God is watching his bride, Israel, committing adultery. Read Ezekiel 16. I mean, he uses graphic language. You, you, you prostitutes, okay? I can get away with that one. And, but you should read the Bible for yourself. He's calling it out. How can you commit this adultery when I'm willing to give you all the blessings, all the things that I've made you for? And that's the picture because it's about a divine marriage. Our marriages are to represent a divine marriage. How is your marriage looking in that divine narrative? But don't stop in the Old Testament. No, no, no. It gets better than that. Because you come to the New Testament, to the New Test, to the New Covenant, where Jesus, and every time we take communion, think of what Jesus says. This is my blood of the covenant. It's the new covenant that Jesus made with his people. And Ephesians 5 tells us what the picture is, because Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, which every married couple should work through, you have to work through that passage, because it says that husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, for Christ is the head of the church, and the husband is the head of the wife. This is where that, oh, yeah, so oppressive, the social narrative out there, how could you be the head? You're co-equals, you're co-, you know, two-headed monsters work really well in the well, you know, real world, right? So 
so let's have two-headed marriages, right? No, that's not how it works. So you listen to this social narrative out there, and it's killing your marriage. It's undermining it. No, you're the head of, I am the head of my marriage. I'm proud to say that. But what does that mean? It means it's a picture of the divine marriage that I sacrifice like Christ does. I sacrifice for Paula. I serve Paula. I am the head to make sure that she's all that God calls her to be. Women, that doesn't sound bad, does it? It's not so I can be oppressive, make my bacon, baby, you know, and get my shoes. No, but that's what the world tells you it means, right? And then when you go through Ephesians in the divine man, and it says, wives, submit to your husband as Christ comes to church. That's the dreaded S word. For thousands of years, you never brought up the S word because you didn't talk about sex in church. Now you never talk about the new S word. Don't talk about submit. Because, you know, what does it mean? You women, you're going to be a doormat, be wiped up, don't listen to some man tell you what to do, you know, that kind of thing. No. It means she's called to come alongside me and work with me so that we can do all that we need to to make the kids the best that they are. It means to make the world a better place. It doesn't mean to be a doormat, but when she, I love to say, can I, I'm going to go off on a tangent, right? This is where you pay the big money to hear me, because, man, I'm going to say it. I get a hardcore radical feminist, and I believe in women equality, okay? But when I, you know, those, no man's going to tell me what to do, and I say, hey, you know, I love Paula too much to let her win. Oh, smoke's just coming out of there. I go, no, 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 no. No, let me tell you what that means. It means I, as the head, I'm serving her. I'm helping her to be all that God, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to die for her. I'm going to do whatever it takes to help her to be all that God wants her to be. Now they're kind of messed up. Like, that sounds actually pretty good, you know? And then I say, but you know, the problem is if I don't do that, that means she has to be the head and she's being put in a position God does not want her or created her for and is putting on pressure and things that's going to make her miserable. And so many women are miserable in their marriage because their men aren't stepping up and being the head that they're called to be. Wow, why did I get more applause from women than men like that? If you ever hang around me, I'm calling out the men. You want to be called the head, great. You take the responsibility that comes with it. <laughs> and I'll probably never be invited back again, but anyway. But you know what? Don't stop there. It gets even better than that. Because have you read the book of Revelation? Have you read how the story ends? Oh, Jesus is coming back. Look at Revelation 19. It's amazing. Listen to it. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. Listen, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. For it is given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words. Did you catch that? The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. I've done a lot of marriages, okay? And I'm kind of in retirement now, so don't ask me to do your wedding. But anyways, I <laughs> travel too much. But... But I've never once been to a, done a wedding where the, you know, the wife shows up with her ripped jeans and her hair's all out of place. And I'm like, hey, where's the guy at? I'm ready to do this, you know? No. One of my favorite moments is when I get to stand next to the groom and he sees his bride for the first time. The door's open and there she is in all her splendor. And he's just like, oh, yeah. And he's tears in his eyes. And I'm like, all right, you're getting married right from the beginning. The bride has made herself ready. 
Why do I treat Paula right? Because I want to make her happy and find my fulfillment in marriage? No, because I want to do the righteous acts for the great bride that I'm part of, the, the great bride to look beautiful when Jesus comes back. So why do I live a holy life? Because I'm trying to find my personal happiness? No, that's expressive individualism. I live a holy life because I want to be beautiful for when Christ comes back and takes me into his kingdom. That's why we live a holy life. But again, I know this is grating on some of you because you bought into this lie that it's about your feelings and your happiness. And when you try to find feelings and happiness in yourself, you know what the Bible says? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You don't find happiness in yourself. You find happiness out there in him. And then him, then you're fulfilled. So, good. So, so what's the culmination of the first creation? Adam and Eve, right? But listen to the culmination of the new creation, the new heaven and earth. Revelation chapter 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. It goes on in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. The culmination of the first creation, Adam and Eve, the culmination of the new creation, Christ and his bride. Amen. That's what we're living for. That's where you find your ultimate fulfillment. That's the divine marriage that we get to dance in, to be a part of. So Did you notice, let me, I just got to go off on this because you, I love to teach my students and you in the foundation, the story of the Bible. Why doesn't it say there that it, the, the bride is the church? It says it's the new Jerusalem. Well, think story. The Bible's how many books? One book, one story. The Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God Israel and the church are coming together in the new Jerusalem to be the bride of God. So good. It is such a good story. So from some of you right now, God's speaking to you. You've listened to humanism. You've listened to expressive individualism. And you see that the foundation is being eroded. And your marriage is teetering right now. For the sake of your children and your grandchildren throw the lies away and realize what Jesus said about marriage. Realize the grand marriage that you're a part of and your church is the real. I love marriage because I love representing Christ in my marriage. And anybody who knows Paul and I, you see it. I don't say that arrogantly. You see it because we work hard to represent Christ and his bride well because it's about him, not about us. And when I make it about him, then he blesses us and we live in the blessings of it. So I get so passionate, sorry if I freaked you out, but I just, I want you to have it. I want you to have it. And I end with this. I don't care if you're single. I don't care if you're divorced, widow, widower, married. All of us, we have a part to play in the divine marriage. Did you catch this? We have a part to play in the divine marriage. Go back to Revelation 21.9. Did you hear? They said to, then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words are true. These are the words of God. You have an invitation. 
to be part of the marriage supper at the end, to be part of the fulfillment of marriage in the new heaven and new earth. But Jesus talks about Matthew 23 and Matthew 25. There's going to be those who are invited, but they don't get into the marriage supper. They're going to be shut out. They're going to be left because they never accepted the invitation. They didn't make themselves ready for the coming of the bridegroom. July, the reason our marriage is the way it is, because, like I said, we were pagans, man. We were messed up, messed up. Just like a lot of you right now, you're living together and you're messed up. You're committing immorality. It messed up, and I know it. I was there. And right now, man, you're under horrible conviction. It's called the Spirit of God, and I was right there with you. We were right there with you because we knew we were on horrible foundation in our relationship. But on July 7, 1980, I received an invitation from the bridegroom to become part of his bride. So I realized Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and he died for my sins. And he rose from the dead. And like I say, anyone who can predict and pull off his own death for resurrection, somebody I should give my life to. And I did, and I became born again. And now I know when the bridegroom comes, I'll be part of his bride. I'm ready. I'm part of his now because I gave my life, and he saved me. Like I say, two months later, that girl, friend of mine, August 31st, 1980, she saw the change God did in my life, and she gave her life to Christ, and she became part of his bride. And now we get to do the divine dance together of living righteously, preparing ourselves for the second coming, to be taken to the, with the king to the place he's preparing for us. If you know anything about Jewish weddings, the, bride, the bridegroom goes and he prepares a place, then he goes and gets his bride and takes her to the house. He's going to come. Could be today. Could be 10 years. We don't know. 20 years. But are you ready? Are you part of his bride? Would you bow your head and pray with me, please? With every head closed and every eye bowed, I just want to ask you, are you ready for his coming? Are you part of the bride of Christ? Are you, you say that you believe in God, but have you been living life, believing there's nothing greater than you? Have you kind of made life all about you? God's saying to some of you right now, online, some of you are feeling it right now. That's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and it's a beautiful thing. God's calling you, saying, come, come, join the wedding feast. Become part of my bride. Believe that I am who I say I am, the son of the living God who died for your sins and rose again. The Bible ends with Revelation 22 saying, Whoever wishes, take of the water of life without cost. Come, drink, and find yourself in the greatest marriage act that will live for eternity. If that's you and God is calling you today, I'm going to give you a chance to respond by asking you to raise your hand. I'm going to count to three, and I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand before God and say, yeah, I want to be part of the divine marriage. I want to be part of the bride of Christ. I want to give my life to Jesus Christ today. That is God calling to you. Just slip up your hand at the count of three. One, two, three. Just raise your hand up before God. Wow, I see the hands. Thank you. You can just put them back down because you're doing this before God. He sees your heart. I see your hand, but he sees your heart. If you're sitting there, just say. You don't have to say some magic prayer. We Usually every week we say a prayer, but I'm just going to have you to this right now. You just say something in your heart like, Lord, I, 
I've realized I need you. I'm giving you my life. And I'm believing. I'm believing that now I'm part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm part of your bride. Thank you for dying for my sins. And I believe you rose from the dead and I give you my life. If you just say something like that in your heart and believe it, welcome to the family. Welcome to the bride. Now there's another group in here right now, another group watching online, and that's you, and you realize the lies have gotten into your marriage. You may say you're a Christian, but you've been living by humanism, and you've been living by expressive individualism. And you want to come clean before the Lord and say, I want to do marriage your way. I'm not trying to find fulfillment in my marriage. I'm going to find fulfillment in you, and I'm going to do marriage. It doesn't matter what my spouse does. It matters what I do, and I'm going to do it your way. I'm going to ask you right now to raise your hand and say to the Lord, Lord, I'm serious. I repent of the way I've been doing marriage. I'm going to do it your way. If that's you, at the, don't even count. Just raise your hand. If that's you, to be serious before the Lord. Thank you. Just put it up and put it back down. God loves people who are willing to repent and admit I've been doing it wrong. I'm coming to you. And those who seek the Lord, he will no way cast out. God, you see every hand, every heart that's been made and committed to you right now. So, Lord, in the name of Jesus, we rejoice in you. Lord, in the name of Jesus, we thank you. Lord, in the name of Jesus, we lift up our voice to you. Say thank you that you are a God who saves. Thank you that you are making a place for us. Thank you that you're going to come home and take us into your kingdom. And we as your bride are preparing and saying, Lord, come quickly. We are ready. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Radiant Church Podcast. For service times or giving options, visit us at weareradiant.com.